On this program, we describe the connections of nature and cities through words. Guests come on the show to talk, and of course, they use words too. Words are my medium, our medium, our society's building blocks, and it's how the human condition is described and how new visions for society are communicated, and eventually how they come into being. Some guests on the show cover the subject matter not through words, but through the medium of science, through discovering and naming new species of life or watching movements of urban animals. But what would it be like to explore the essence of cities and nature and a plan for the future and safety of cities and nature, not through words or science, but through the act of creating actual objects, through the physical making of structures and shelters? What would it be like not to talk so much, but to change the shape of our human world and improve the natural world by literally and physically changing their contours? We're about to find out, because on a daily basis, that's what today's guest does. This is Jill Riddell. Welcome to The Shape of the World. I'm Jamie Gang. I'm an architect, and I founded Studio Gang. And we're an architecture and urban design firm located in Chicago, Paris, San Francisco, and New York. The objects Jeannie Gang has made include, among others, the tallest skyscraper ever designed by a female architect. Jeannie Gang was a recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award and has a beautiful new book out now about her work, published by Fiden Publishing in London. Jeannie Gang is someone whose work I've been following and admiring for over a decade, and because I live in Chicago where she first set up shop, I've been able to witness firsthand how the structures she dreams up have a positive impact on the world we live in. So Jeannie, when I first set up this meeting, we were already in lockdown in America for the COVID-19 pandemic. And since the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and concerns about policing and how cities are policed, just I have to imagine you've been engaged in a lot of conversations about this and I'm sure share with other people a lot of emotion around this. And how are you and how are you doing and how are you, what are you thinking about what this is probably not nature right now? Well, and thanks for asking. It's a very disturbing time and it's emotionally, uh, it's like a roller coaster in terms of what's going on. And I feel that sometimes it has also been this opportunity to make voices heard and over something as important and disturbing and shocking as the murder of George Floyd and others. I mean, it's been happening all along. And so this opportunity of being able to collectively have our voices heard is something not to be missed. It's a very important time in our history in this country and, and, and frankly, all over the world right now. It's a lot of tragedy, but also a silver lining if things can change. There's also things that are like that about nature as well, changes that we need to make for our ecosystem. So it's a very intense, amplified moment that I hope can be used to make these significant changes to our way of life and to the way that we treat others and the way that we cohabitate on this planet. I was thinking about your buildings and your structures. So many of them have at the very heart of them the idea of being welcoming spaces. 
I'm an architect, but the, the way that I see our practice working is similar to and parallel to the way an ecologist would work in that, you know, we're studying the relationships between living things, between people and each other, and between us and our habitat, our planet, our cities. And so it's really studying the relationships and not the individual elements themselves. And so when you see it all as connected, what I try to do and what we try to do is to design so that we can facilitate better relationships, improve our relationships between each other and the environment. What's an example of something that illustrates that? One of the projects that we did about five years ago was looking at how could you focus on this completely strained and non-functioning relationship between police and communities and completely change that. And so there were a lot of uh, recommendations that were done by task force and, and studies that showed some of the changes that need to happen are, Im- are improving the level of trust between police and the communities that they are supposed to be protecting. And so we started thinking about, you know, is, is architecture a component of that or could it be a positive component of that? And through that work, we just did a thought experiment of what if a police station was no longer really a jail? What if it was a, more of a community center where people would go for all kinds of services? So yes, safety and security and to report a crime, but also maybe to receive mental health services or to even to have community spaces for, you know, like a, let's say a birthday party for someone in your neighborhood. So it would really be a place where people could interact and get to know each other and it would strengthen the communities instead of be a place to be afraid of and tear communities apart. It was really not commissioned by anyone. It was a self-initiated project. And sometimes we do that to, it's using architecture as our medium to study things in the world, to, to act in the world. I think that's really an interesting idea. It reminds me a little bit of the transformation that's happened to hospitals, where they used to be a place where people only ended up totally in dire straits, and they're remaking themselves to be community health centers and a place that generates health. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, obviously still treats things when things go really wrong for people as well. It's not like they got rid of that function, but I could see there being something like that in your concept of a Mm -hmm. police station where... There still is that mode of understanding that there are certain times when people are dangerous enough that they do need to be removed from the community for a certain period of time or that there's some kind of a, something that's similar to what police do now. But that idea that they could also incorporate these other functions where the people that are fulfilling that role of police have stronger bonds mm-hmm. and understand people at other times in their lives and not just in those moments of dire straits. Yeah, I guess we called this project Polis Station because Polis is a name for a tightly knit community. So instead of a police station, it was a Polis Station. (laughs) And the idea of this, really what would be involved could be very specific to the different community where it's located. In order to find out what is needed in any specific community, you have to start with asking the people that live there. That's the way that we approached it. We just started interviewing and having some meetings with the community members, but also the members of the police force, and tried to find the things that they had in common. One of the interesting things is one of the ladies that lived in the community said that 
she wanted a place where a lot of very fun things could be going on. And if someone wanted to be part of that, they would know they would have to behave <laughs> and, and to be part of that community, that tight-knit community. She really envisioned a place that totally had a positive vibe that was radiating out this thing that you want to be part of. It was very interesting. And, and people had different ideas of what could be something that would be both used by people that work for this the police, the police in that, at that time, but it could be really just a city outlet with many different services available. And almost like a library is sometimes acts that way as a kind of a real solid community builder and a place for people to gain access to information, to work on the, oneself, to work on one's community, to work on one's neighborhood, um, to, to find work, those kind of things. It could really be supportive. Those are amazing concepts. I really do hope that in the conversations being had now in American cities about potentially defunding police departments and radically reshaping what policing looks like, that these ideas are some of the ones that make it into the conversation. You know, I actually live in Chicago in the Kenwood Hyde Park neighborhood, and I'm lucky enough to live very close to three buildings that you designed. The dorm built for University of Chicago, the apartment building Solstice, and the mixed-use residential and retail building called City Hyde Park. I'd be interested to hear more about your thinking on those buildings and how they might exemplify the kind of excellence in the built environment that you're talking about and that maybe how they represent a path forward. I think what we need to do in the city of Chicago is to reduce the anxiety of living in the city, increase the social connectivity and connection to nature within the city so that people don't feel the need to just move out and and go far away from the city and drive all the time. In tall buildings, it's the case that you always have to get into the elevator, you know, to get up to your apartment and... Um, when you want to leave the building, you have to get back in the elevator and go all the way down. And it really reduces your connection to the outdoors. So the idea with a lot of our residential buildings and taller buildings is to try to create opportunities for almost like a front porch or a threshold that allows people to step outside and be connected to the environment and each other. For City Hyde Park, for example, uh, the building allows people to use their porch and go outside and say hey to their neighbor and just make it more attractive for people to have a social relationship with their neighbors. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about nature in Chicago. So you're from Illinois originally, is that right? Yes, born and raised northern Illinois in the small town of Belvedere is where I grew up. I don't know at what stage of the game you moved to Chicago, but did you find it hard at first to access nature when you arrived here? I often find that newcomers are a bit baffled by where the nature is. What was your relationship with finding nature in the city? Yeah, I mean, Chicago was, I guess, my city, my big city growing up for, for museums and such. And and of course, like the first thing you want to do with the city is get all the way to the eastern edge, to the lakefront. When I was growing up, it it shocked me that a city the size of Chicago had such a big lake that was almost like an ocean. So I always was attracted to this vast lake, even growing up. And but then when I ultimately located here, it was when I was working on a project 
It was a design competition for the Calumet Environmental Center that I started to really see what the wildlife really was. And that wasn't on the lakefront per se, but it was on this connections of all these waterways and wetlands that are interconnected in the Chicago region. And as we were completing the competition and thinking about this site in Calumet, I started to read the accounts of different wildlife that, that is present in this kind of former industrial zone. And I also learned that there was a big problem with the interactions between migratory birds and buildings. Being an architect, you know, I didn't really want to design buildings that would kill birds, especially birds that people are coming to see. And so this is a major problem in, in architecture where glass is responsible for killing many, many, many birds. I think it's something like I want to say 93 million birds in North America per year that collide with window glass. Um, and many of these are migratory birds. So I wanted to learn more about that, and I spent time studying it, uh, working with some of the bird monitors that work in Chicago to rescue birds that are collided with the glass, because I was trying to understand, could this be changed in terms of design of buildings? Um, and so... I think I'm answering your question, but I came a long way around it of, <laughs> of saying that, you know, in Chicago, my awareness of nature really is parallel with my trajectory as an architect. I mean, when I was growing up in northern Illinois, my family, my mom, my scouts, <laughs> we all spent time in nature and I knew a lot about the wildlife in that area, in the Boone County area. But to see how much wildlife diversity was right in the city and the Calumet area was really exciting to find out. And then um, meeting other people that are birders and and uh, just following, you know, how Chicago functions as a link in this a network of wildlife areas has been really fascinating to me. And I've tried to design things that support that. Well, you've done a beautiful job of it, and it's so been interesting for me to see how those buildings function out in the world. What do you think about this idea of rewilding our cities? I kind of have fallen in love with that word, and that idea of reconnecting corridors for wildlife, making green spaces, and just incorporating nature as a more natural part of cities. We tend to think of it as something that almost comes in as an artificial artifact that comes like, oh, well, let's put some concrete planters outside to put some nature back in. But that whole concept of really weaving these two things together seems like a really exciting idea. Oh, it, it totally is. Our cities reflect these different philosophical attitudes about each other and about nature. So in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, it was really about trying to replicate and idealize what it looked like. For example, a lot of those those early parks that we have, they represent nature, but they don't actually support it. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. like with, mm -hmm. with food and with all the things, the types of habitat that are needed, the types of food that's needed, and the full biodiversity that's needed for wildlife to thrive. Jeannie, I understand that the building that you're housed in now with your architectural firm has a roof garden and that every year you do what's called a bio blitz to see what's living and growing there. Yes, this is like our own little experiment. When we moved from Ashland over to 
division in Bosworth, we bought this building and wanted to install this rooftop garden. The scientist in me <laughs> came out and I really just wanted it to be more of a, an experiment. And so we worked with Steve Applebaum for Applied Ecological Services, the Urban Wildlife Institute, started Link Bar Zoo, and, and many others to install this rooftop garden that would be biodiverse. We started out with a big variety of regional uh, seeds and plants. The BioBlitz is really about you know measuring what we see there every year and seeing if it is increasing or decreasing. With the idea of it, though, is in a city you need a lot of the land down on street level for infrastructure for moving, bikes, cars, and it is pretty hard to get high-quality habitat there on the ground. And so I was just thinking that if it was up on the rooftop, then if people started to do it across the city, I mean, you would basically would get this connective wildlife corridors in the sky, and it could really help supply, you know, this needed habitat for a lot of birds and insects. You know, I lived in Bucktown at the corner of Honoré and Wabansia, and we put a roof garden on our rooftop before we moved down to Hyde Park. And it was really startling to see how something that had been tar basically before became habitat. It became an ecosystem so fast. Yeah, and the rooftop gardens that were first installed, maybe they used only one type of species like sedum. Uh, We designed a couple like that early on. But the one that the city installed, they actually did put a lot more diversity up there, and theirs is very much thriving. So the idea of these roof gardens is not just to have any kind of plants up there, but ones that are very useful. The technology has gotten better, so you can support those plants with deeper roots. That's the hard thing in Illinois because we have prairie plants that like to put their roots way down down. <laughs> So right. some of these, these the, the way that it's done now is, is really, it's enabling us to grow plants up there that you wouldn't have been able to do in the past. Oh, that's interesting to know. So the, are there lighter planter mediums, like instead of using soil? Or what is it that's making it possible to support the weight? What's the technology change? Part of it is pre-growing some of the plants and then the substructures that allow you to retain more water and then the mediums you can have more of it and lighter weight so it could be kind of equivalent to what a ballasted roof would be so i know that one of the things that you're famous for is having built aqua which is a beautiful skyscraper in downtown chicago it happens to be the tallest structure designed by a woman architect and i also know that you went to great lengths to try to make that building someplace that birds were not going to be colliding with the glass could you speak to the design decisions that went into that early on were there some things that you learned that you think you could get even better next time and you've got another chance too right you're building another huge building in Chicago, the Vista building right now. No, it's it's interesting because I had learned all of that about these bird safe building techniques, that some of it was really not knowledge that's written down. It was things I learned directly from the people who go around trying to rescue birds that have collided with buildings. 
So it's not like... Yeah, can I just yeah. interrupt you for one yeah. second? You and I actually were in some meetings together on <laughs> bird, the, that. that little bird safety group that would meet in like a little room in City Hall. And, and you were the only person from the building community that actually came to those meetings. And everybody was always... Like when you'd show up, everybody would be really excited. <laughs> like, oh, here's somebody who's really listening. And <laughs> I was think, I, I was working for the Peggy Notabart Nature Museum at the time. I remember you now. And, oh my gosh. Okay, <laughs> this makes total sense. Um, yeah, yeah. So when when I was designing that building, it wasn't like there was you know some rule book. It was really knowledge that was being created by people who had seen this. Or I remember Doug Stotts, who curates the ornithology at the Field Museum. He had spent time walking around McCormick Place every year and, and during migration and picking up dead birds for his collection at the Field Museum. Not that he wanted to see them killed. He just he knew that this was happening. So when in the design of Aqua, the idea is to reduce the pure mirror-like quality of high-rises. I mean, those mirror-reflective facades are some of the worst, uh, the most dangerous for birds uh, because they just see the reflection of the environment and they think that they can go through. A lot like, you know, I've seen people do it too. And um, people oftentimes get more confused by pure transparency when the lighting is the same in the inside and the outside, and they can run right into glass. And of course, birds can too, especially if you put a plant inside your window that they want to get to. So there's a lot of different situations. In the design of Aqua, one of the things that makes the building what it is invisible is the the undulating floor slabs that that come out and become terraces balconies it's not like i really knew that would work but it does seem to have worked we're not monitoring that building ourselves but we have heard anecdotally from people who do the bird rescue that it's it isn't a building that a lot of birds are running into. Another choice there was to create handrails that are metal picket rails as opposed to reflective glass rails or glass that is out in the environment like on the edge of a balcony. If it were clear glass they really just they can't tell that it's there. That's probably one of the most dangerous things like to have just pure glass out in the environment no differentiation. So you can do things like put frit you know ceramic frit on that glass or in our case at Aqua, we just had um, metal rails. So, so for half the height of the glass, there is this warning area for them. But it's also transparent for people, which was another thing we were looking for. So it creates an obstacle. So they see it as an obstacle that they're not going to fly into. It doesn't look like a continuation of nature. Right. Like they see, I believe, it's every four inches, which happens to be the spacing that's required for a handrail too. If you can have a pattern that's every four inches, whether it's the handrail or whether if you have glass, you could have a pattern on it that's regular every four inches, you would definitely reduce the bird strikes there. And what are you trying at Vista? What are you trying out there as a way of reducing bird collisions with that building? In that one, if you notice the, the vertical glass, every floor it steps in, four inches or steps out four inches. So it's also getting this texture that is visible because of the low reflectivity of the glass that we're using that should also reduce the bird strikes. So in specking the glass, you got something that should be less reflective? 
Right. And a lot of these strategies also double to reduce your energy use. So that's also good. Architects are still married to this notion that glass is just about transparency, which was like, you know, what we talked about in the early 20th century, that the new architecture should have transparency. But today, glass is many different things. A thin, single-pane piece of glass is not going to do much for your energy performance. The heat comes through and the cold comes through. So glass has evolved to have a lot more at play. There's a lot more to work with. So we can work with coatings. We can work with reducing reflectivity. We can work with the thermal performance. There are people working on glass that would just look the same, completely transparent, but still be visible to birds by using the ultraviolet range of their seeing to put patterns on the glass. Patterns that we can't see, but they could see. So when you uh, have these ideas, or uh, did you run some of these by Doug Stotts or other people ahead of time to see whether they thought they might work? Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of problem that I get excited about because it's not solvable by any one person. You really need people who know how birds see. You need the manufacturers who know how to make glass. You need your engineers who are designing the thermal envelope of the building. And you need architects who can speak all of those languages and put it all together. (laughs) And so it's really, it's kind of an exciting thing. I wish that more architects would be as excited about it as I am, I guess. Or just not even the architects. I think architects are trying to do the right thing. And more, maybe it's the owners. And, and that's where it comes down to, similar to the environmental performance of the building, you need to have some regulation. Otherwise, there isn't an incentive to do it, and you just get business as usual. So I think that incentivizing the performance of a building through various programs, using policy to help incentivize and also to regulate. We need to do that for the the greater good. Well, Chicago right now has a bird-friendly ordinance in front of it that could make a huge difference. Yes, but there is still pushback. It hasn't been passed yet. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing and what you're saying makes me think of a couple things. One is I'm thinking about how hard it is to design a building, get a building built, go through all of that process just to make the most ordinary kind of building. It's really hard. And I think you're right about there having to be some sort of incentives to choose that more difficult path of incorporating these ideas. You know, I just read an obituary for Christo in the New York Times. Michael Kimmelman was writing about how Every bit of the process was something that Christo loved. It wasn't just the creation and seeing something like the gates in Central Park put up, that he loved the meetings. He loved the sitting around in those meetings in city halls, like I was just describing that you were doing all those years ago. He actually even loved the rejections. And when Michael Kimmelman asked him about uh, getting turned down yet again for the gates in Central Park, and he was told it was the wrong idea at the wrong time in the wrong place and crystal said oh yes that sounds like a bit of abstract poetry (laughs) (laughs) yes and it seems like you're also capable of taking a certain delight in process that maybe is a bit rare well i'm turned on i guess most by that feeling of making a discovery when you're in the design process but then i have a little bit of that 
probably, I don't know if I got it from my mom or my dad, but a little bit of that quality of like wanting to overcome when somebody puts an obstacle, I want to go through it. And it's just, it makes winning it, you know, getting it finally done. Because as you said, it takes so much time and energy, everybody's energy working together and you want to see it get done. And so, you know, having that resistance, it kind of gives you the adrenaline to just go all the way. (laughs) So yeah, there's a bit of pleasure in that. (laughs) How did that manifest in your mom and your dad? Did you see them kind of enjoy that fight and that kind of rubbing their hands together and saying, oh, it's all part of the game? (laughs) Um, You know, if you're from the Midwest, you know that you wouldn't do it like that. You you wouldn't rub your hands together. It would just be more of, you know, you do it with patience. And then it's like an internal joy, not, not something you would ever say out loud. But my dad did do that actually when he was an engineer for the county. He got a, a, a certain road that he wanted to get built for the county where he was told no and he had to get all of the right away. And I know it was one of the things that stressed him the most that I had ever seen him stressed. And, um, but he did prevail and I never found out about it from my dad. But I found out about it later on when I was trying to, for my town, my hometown, I was trying to get this bridge built in a better way than what they they were going to replace an old bridge and put in a kind of like highway style bridge down the middle of town. And so I was working on that project and I went all the way down to Dixon to talk to the head engineer for the state. And when I came in the room, he said, I saw your name is Gang. He goes, I, I remember your dad sitting there fighting me <laughs> to get this highway or to get some road done. So it was funny finding out about it like way later. So your dad hadn't, hadn't bragged about it as a big victory. No. He had been all Midwestern about it. And just when it got done, it got done. The road was there and that was enough. Exactly. And I only found out about it after sitting face to face with the man who was trying to stop him from <laughs> doing it. That's amazing. What did your mom do? So your dad was an engineer. And my mom, she ultimately, she was a librarian, but she also was a scout leader and a craft person, really. So she had the creativity and she was a very civic minded and she did a lot of organizing of community. I really respected that part of her. She really was able to mobilize and get things done. What do you think they expected of you? Or you, do you think architecture was a natural fit with what they would have imagined? Or did your life take a surprising turn? Well, I do remember being discouraged from choosing, not architecture, but I think originally I wanted to be a veterinarian and at school mm-hmm. being discouraged from that and being pretty upset about it. But them saying, ah, you, you can do whatever you want to do. Don't, don't listen. Just do it. So... They were very supportive. Why were you discouraged? Were you discouraged because you were female, or what was the what was the where did that come from? I think from? that was the main reason. There, mm-hmm. it definitely definitely yeah. wasn't from my grades. I was you know straight A student, so so there was that kind of expectations of what the proper lifestyle would be for a, a girl. But no, they weren't listening to any of that, and, and so I did definitely felt supported in whatever I did. So that's, that's really important for everyone, for kids. And how did you find your way then to architecture? What, uh, where was it where you started to really put these interests of yours together? I was hearing you sort of say the, the scientist in me wanted to do this. And that suddenly made me think that maybe you're one of those people who, 
you had a whole bunch of choices of careers and then suddenly something clicks with one and that's the path you choose. What was that thing that clicked for you? Well, I knew I loved to make, you know, forts and um, tree houses and build things. That So that was all there. And then combined with the kind of artistic approach and vision and putting the kind of technical side together with artistic side or math and science and art <laughs> that kind of equals architecture in a certain way um, because it's a combination of, of the left and right brain. I'm also thinking that your early interest in being a veterinarian is so interesting because you have ended up being someone who contributes to the health of animals. Yes, but that was probably would have never been a good profession for me because I, I really, my sister is a doctor and I'm definitely not into the gory part of, of, of what must they do face every day. But I definitely did have the love of nature and animals from a very early age. So yeah, I'm just trying to bring that into what I do today. Luckily, I'm also joined by a lot of like-minded people on my team here at Studio Gang, and, and so it's really fun to work together with them to think of things and to see such creativity, like the team that's working on our roof garden, Lydia and Caroline and um, Claire, are all just as into it as I am and coming up with great ideas all the time. So I like that I'm surrounded by people that share the same love of the environment. I played some of the videos that were on your website, the Toward Terrestrial, to my family members, all of whom were just awestruck and loving it. And I think that must just be so exciting to work with other people who share those values. It is. And it's like trying to articulate what that means for an architecture practice is really interesting because in the past, there was more of a narrow idea of what an architecture practice could be. I feel like We've expanded the boundaries of what that is by doing some of the things we talked about today, you know, like self-initiated projects or experiments and really enjoying our medium, not just only for our projects that are commissions, but just because this is who we are and we want to explore that in a creative way. And it ultimately ends up benefiting our clients and our commissions, but it's really generated from a place that's just the, the curiosity is there and deeply there. And we want to use our medium to explore it and to fulfill the need to create, to fulfill a, the, some of the things in society that we care about and to use architecture as this way to care about our place in the world and everything around us. So seeing the world as you do and having the perspective and experiences that you've had, do you see something about nature and cities or about life in general? Has it spilled over to any basic tenets or philosophy about life and the human condition? Basically, I've always thought about not only humans, but also the other living things around us as part of our realm that we can work with and relate to. I've been really interested in the writings of Bruno Latour, who is a French philosopher. He has this theory called actor network theory, a philosophy of how things are interrelated and that it's not only humans acting on the world, but it's other things that happen uh, that end up impacting our decisions so that, you know, there's a realm of influences. And I think that 
this term toward the idea of the terrestrial is really what he uses to describe the earth because a lot of the words like nature is just too broad or ecology you know is more of a politicized word now and so uh, terrestrial is really just thinking and caring about this very thin layer that is the surface of the globe and you could contrast that with a lot of work that is being done to get us off of our planet <laughs> projecting things into space the the amount of effort that is spent on getting away and understanding space compared to what is spent on understanding our very own earth and our oceans for example in reality this is really what we need to survive this crust of the earth to be supportive of us and that's the claim that i'm making in my recent book which is really that our practice is going toward a better understanding of the terrestrial realm architecture is in this interesting place it's like built on the earth that reaches up but it's built on the earth so it's really our mediation between what's out there and and, and what we need to survive down here I believe that we are driven by social relationships and as well much of nature is as well including many animals that live in social societies so we are we are animals <laughs> we are, we are and so I think we need to better understand our co-inhabitants on the planet yes and it'll make us feel less alone yes and we can learn a mutual benefit relationship instead of just uh, thinking of nature as something to be harvested or um, to be used as a resource. I thought for some time that there's just a lot of power in the word coexistence. We have all these other deep links as well with other species and the land itself, but also just allowing other things to exist side by side, that we don't have to regard every animal as either a potential pest or enemy or as therefore a pet and something we have to pamper and take care of. But it's okay to, to coexist. And that somehow I feel like that could carry over into the moment we're in now of finding ways to coexist and share spaces. I think we have to take that further. I mean, coexistence works for a while, but we really have to cultivate the idea of care. It, mutualism, which is like, you know, mutual benefit, but but care is kind of a word that implies more than coexistence. And I think that we're missing care right now. We need to learn how to care for each other stronger and more proactively care. So I agree with you. Like I, I used coexistence for a while to function and to explain things, but I think we have to go further than that. Do you think that underlying that idea of care is seeing, hmm. observing, noticing? And listening, right? Listening. Yeah. Because if you are put on this earth and you have some kind of privilege, it's easy not to listen to others. And we have to learn how to listen to the voices that are right around us. Black Lives Matter, African Americans, people with different experiences, and just really 
take time to listen to what their experiences are and how we can respond and change to make it a more just society. Yes. So Jeannie, where are we headed next? Where does all of this lead, do you think? You know, I've worked together with my team a long time and we try to do things that help make a better place, help make a better world. So there's kind of that impulse. There's also the impulse of the art of what we do and how that can evolve. The recent book that I just finished really focuses in on the architecture itself and how its different themes are present and how they could be expanded upon. The third thing is we are ready to do the most complex of projects because we've developed so much internal knowledge and a repository of approaches and methods and details and form making that is mature and just like hitting its stride. And so I feel like I'm really ready. In some ways, it's kind of a responsibility now to use all of this toward complex projects, such as cultural projects, projects that the public can enter and visit, projects that are impactful culturally and internationally. And we're right now competing for a project for a presidential library for late president uh, Teddy Roosevelt and his conservation legacy. As you might know that we're we're completing right now a new wing on the American Museum of Natural History. And at the same time, I don't want to stop working on small things that are really wonderful and fun to do as well. I really want to do things that have an impact, but I also want to continue to practice the art of architecture and to, mm-hmm. yeah, continue to make discoveries mm-hmm. along the way. Mm-hmm. And make some beautiful things that make a beautiful difference. Yes, that makes me very happy to do that. Jeannie, thank you so much for being on The Shape of the World. It's been amazing to talk with you. Jill, thank you for having me. This is It's been a great chance to reconnect with you about things that we both share a deep passion for. This is Jill Riddell, and I hope this conversation with Jeannie Gang gives you fresh hope about how cities can be places where nature thrives, and that you'll take away Jeannie's lesson on the importance of caring for each other and for nature. This is the final episode of season three. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have a minute, please rate the show and write something about why you like it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you know someone that you think might enjoy the show, please tell them. Looking forward to connecting with you again in season four. Until then, enjoy the outdoors and be well. The Shape of the World is about nature, cities, and people, and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce a story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. You can find Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website shapeoftheworldshow.com. There, you'll find out more about Jeannie Gang's work and a drawing of Jeannie by the artist Nicole V. Hill, and much more. 
The Shape of the World's producer is Ralph Losa. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Thank you to today's guest, Jeannie Gang.